You were saying? Welcome to episode 101 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Tonight I am joined by the guy that has put up with me for 101 episodes, Darren Weeks. I am just the random Canadian Civil War nerd, Mary. Whoa, welcome back. Welcome back to Introductions, Mary so Fincher. Way to go. That's a round of applause. What's going on? How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, we're back in the saddle again. It's just us two uh, coming off of a great weekend in Gettysburg last week. Mm-hmm. We got to meet a lot of some of our Civil War nerd friends. We got to hang out with them for score and some other places around the uh, the battlefield. Had a really good episode with uh, with Alexander Rose yes. talking about the uh, the Lion and the Fox books and some spy stuff. And we had a really and good book club with him too. And for anybody who has not read The Lion and the Fox, we really encourage you to read it because it's an excellent book. I find it funny that, you know, the what we're going to be talking about tonight does have some elements of what we were talking about with uh, Alex Rose as well, like a little bit about the blockade, but not a lot. That's obviously not the subject of what we were talking about. But before we get really into it, what are you drinking? Oh my God. Thank you so much for asking, Mara. I never thought you would ask. I'm drinking, it's called Anti-Resin. It is an IPA from Six Point Brewery down in Brooklyn, New York. I'm drinking it out of my Fort, Fort Sumter mug, which is going to play a big part in this episode. I don't yes. know if you know this, but it's going to be a big part of it. I will return the favor to you, and I will ask you what you're drinking. I am mm. drinking the crisp also from um, Six Point Brewing out of New York. It's actually really good for a Pilsner. I'm not a fan of Pilsner, so when I cracked that can open, I was like, mm, how's this going to go? And it was really good. But yeah, so we are on to episode 101, and our topic tonight is somebody that does not get stuck a whole lot this person should and I found a really good quote in a book that I've checked out from the library about him and it says history often plays strange tricks that is in reference to Robert Smalls and that is a quote from Charles Cowley in 1882 and just about Smalls absence from the historical record and the record of the Civil War as well and Crowley felt that after some time had passed maybe Smalls would occupy a more prominent place in the history of the Civil War and when the story was told. And here we are in 2023, and his story still doesn't get talked about a lot. He's still not as well known as what he should be. So I thought that was a really interesting quote, the way that this book started off was history often plays strange tricks. And Smalls no, definitely it, falls into that category. He's definitely a guy, he might be the most misnamed person in the entire Civil War, considering what he did, the size of his guts, and especially the size of his stones. He'd be anything but small. But of course, that's what Robert Small's name is. So for me, instead of talking to a small person, I get to talk about a person named Smalls. So I'm going to enjoy this one as well. So his story is legendary, but people may not realize his overall impact mm-hmm. is not just, you know, African Americans in this country, but the entire country as a whole. I mean, his bravery, his cunning, his persistence made Smalls a legend in the North and a bane of the South's existence. Yep. No question about that. When you really dive into his story, and there's just, there's only a few books written about him. There's one from the 1970s and then there's another one I think the one that we another one we got from the library was from the early 2000s but he's not really talked about a lot and he should be he's like you said the stones on him like what he did he's born into slavery on April 5th 1839 in Beaufort South Carolina to a woman named Lydia who was enslaved by Henry McKee you'll notice there that this Robert Smalls does not have the name of his master which was common for slaves no one knows where he got the name Smalls from yeah it's, it's one of the mysteries you know, his, his mother was in here. Her name is Lydia Pauline. You know, she was 43 years old. Beaufort, South Carolina is, is a, in a place called Port Royal Island. It's a really wealthy plantation area. 
had a huge slave population. Because of the number of slaves, Beaufort had a really strong slave patrol, you know, who watched closely to prevent any hint of a slave, a slave uprising. Now, remember, near Charleston, South Carolina, Mary, they had that they had a near slave yeah. revolt in 1822, led by a guy named Denmark Vesey, and, and he was promptly hanged, naturally. But also about nine years earlier was, was Nat Turner's rebellion in yeah. Virginia. And so that whole white population in that area was always on watch. Their radar was always on. You know, when Small was born, sea cotton was booming. That was the big business. Yeah. You know, um, that type of cotton made a ton of money for Beaufort, uh, basically on the backs of slave labor. Now, life in Beaufort was great for the white planters, but it was brutal for the black slaves. Now, most plantation owners didn't actually live on their plantations. Most owned mansions in mm -hmm. Beaufort. And what they would do is they would ride via carriage to the plantations to check on, on their cotton and their property. Now, one of the larger plantations was a place called Ashdale. Now, this was owned by John and Margaret McKee. I'm just going to go back a little bit, get into Henry, okay? One of their visits was in 1805 to Asheville from their home in Beaufort when they visited their slaves. They would come and check out their plantation, check out how things were going. Most of the slaves were very standoffish. I mean, you can only imagine. They were afraid of, you know, but there was, but on this day, it was an 11-year-old girl. This is Lydia now approached them and the McKees, the McKees took a shine to her just for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So they took her away from her family to bring, who was at Ashdale, to bring the, her to their house in Beaufort. And this was extremely hard on Lydia, 11 year old girl, she's separated by her family. But this is what, because family separation is, was very common yeah. and it was very feared, right? So although they were separated, you know, she was basically a house slave. She was a servant, right? And so she was protected from the whippings and all the other harsh penalties that that existing South Carolina slave code had mm -hmm. uh, that her peers in Ash Ashdale lived on that day. Yeah. Now, when John McKee died in 1834, Lydia, who's going to be now, she's 38 now, became the property of John's son, Henry, a man who was 15 years older than Lydia and one who Lydia, despite fact he wasn't that young she kind of helped raise him a little bit yeah and so henry and lydia were very very close and they spent a lot of time with each other despite the fact that lydia was a slave and that henry was the son of, of her wealthy owner now when her when when uh, when dad died henry became lydia's owner and they moved to a place on 5 511 prince street in beaufort and Lydia took residence in the slave quarters behind the house. Now, here's that story we were kind of just talking about. Five years later, Lydia is going to give birth to a son, and his name is going to be Robert. And no one knows who, the, who Robert's father was, but the scuttlebutt around the water cooler in Beaufort <laughs> that the father was, was Henry McKee. Yeah. And it was never proven, and no one really knows. It's all speculation. Well, it's not like they had 23 and me back then, right? Or... <laughs> I mean, they... they There's a talk I, I, show that's it... like, you are not the father? <laughs> well, they went on Springer, and it was inconclusive. They, they Wasn't it Maury Povich that did that? Oh, you're right. It was Maury Povich. I think it was. God. There was so many. It was, you you are not. Now. It turned into like, he used to be like, it said like variety of topics, and it became like paternity tests. Oh, that, yeah. that's, that's always a good time. But somewhere around then... To your point, Robert is going to take the name, the surname of Smalls, and no one really knows where it came from. No one really knows why it came from. It just kind of happened. And but but before too long, you had young Robert, his mother Lydia, were both house slaves for Henry McKee and Henry's wife Jane Bold. Mm -hmm. Now 
Robert's tasks were pretty menial, you know, cleaning boots, fetching water, basic stuff like that. But he was spared that real hard labor that many of the slaves back at Ashdale, uh, back in Boone Plantation, many of the plantations in yeah. the area were subjected to. Um, and so they weren't treated badly by all accounts, comparatively speaking. Okay, they're still slaves, but they they weren't physically um, put to the, the ringers no, like a lot of the other ones were. Like she, I don't want to say she was lucky because no one's lucky in that at all. But she did know the horrors of it from where she had been before. And she wanted Robert to see that. So she actually, I think there was a time she requested, she's like, I want you to put him out in the fields because she wanted him to see how bad it was she was afraid that he would think it was like oh this is not that bad she wanted him to know what a horrible life it was right and so you know what you know what she does first of all she's going to tell robert what happened to her that yeah. i was separated from my family also mckee did not teach them how to read they still slept in the slave quarters so they, they you know it wasn't like they, they they were slaves okay they were by no means were they living some sort of charmed existence no. but robert was and lydia for the most part they were shielded from a lot of it so Lydia, one day, Robert's 10 years old now, Lydia's going to take Robert on a trip to Beaufort. And while there, they're going to see a slave auction. She's going to take him to a slave auction so she can see this. They visited the town jail. They saw a slave, a woman being whipped. The reason Lydia did this was to show Robert and prepare him for what could happen. Yeah. This experience stuck with Robert and his personality quickly changed. The experience and the memory of knowing his family was separated is one that stuck with him. Mm -hmm. Now, from this point on, Robert became very angry and very rebellious to the point that he would do things like purposely break curfew. You know, in town, in Beaufort, what they do is they have a bell. And yeah. the bell would ring at a certain time, and you had to be back. And if you missed curfew, there were those slave patrols I talked about, right? They were walking around. If yeah. they caught you, they'd return you to your master, and you'd be punished accordingly. So that's what's going to happen to Robert. And by all accounts, he wasn't really punished, but you know what happens? Smalls was taken to a blacksmith shop, and he watched a slave. Not him. He watched somebody else, a slave, put a 60-pound piece of iron on each of his feet for hours. And once removed, the slave could not walk for days. It yeah. just damaged him. This was his punishment. He also said at Ashford that he saw a woman whipped uh, on the back so many times and so hard that none of her skin on her back was her own anymore. It was all scars. Ugh. And th these are the memories that he had. Yeah. So 1851, Robert's 12 years old now. McKee is going to sell the house on Prince Street to a guy named William de Treble. And Robert is going to get sent away to Charleston, which is 75 miles away, to make some money. Now, he wasn't sold. He was just sent away to make money. Well, so that he was goes a to common Charleston. practice back then, right? right? That they would send them off to make money. So he basically is going to go make work odd jobs, but most of the money that that Robert received, he had to send back to Henry. He kept a little, got to keep a little bit. We'll a dollar. talk about that, right? Yeah. So he didn't keep make much, but he was working. He was in the city. Now Charleston was everything Beaufort wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was a bustling city. It had cobblestone streets, it had waterfront mansions, and it had docks. Now it also had a slave market downtown at the old Exchange Building. Now there. Smalls talked. He talks a bunch of stories about what he saw. He talks about how he saw a naked black man and black woman sold in public. The crowd was so big that they had to close the streets down oh my because God. for traffic. That's how screwed yeah. up it was. It was a spectacle. 
the punish the punishment in, in Charleston was significantly worse than than Bulford. There was basically if you were so if you broke curfew, which was the common thing, for the unlucky slave, he or she was sent to a place that was so it was basically a sweatshop. It was called the workhouse. Yeah. And it was affectionately known as the sugar house because all the slave owners would tell the slaves, I'm sending you there for a little sugar. That was the phrase. Oh gosh. Which that's basically terrible. Which basically meant they were they were to work to the bone to the point where they would collapse. Yeah, and it was all it it, it was all sent for punishment. Yeah, Rob now Robert remember he's just twelve years old. That's all he is. Mm. He was terrified at what he saw in Charleston, because he was a slave. He had to wear a diamond shaped badge. Yeah, they had like, like a, yeah they had like, you know, kind of just whatever to distinguish them they even had in charleston i think at, at one point for the freed african-americans that lit because there was freed african-americans that lived in charleston and they had all kinds of jobs like masons carpenters a lot of traders yeah. barbers they had to wear i think it was um like id tags around their necks and they had to have white men act as their guardians so there's right. still like some level of enslavement there but it's quite clear that uh charleston and just you know, Carolina as a whole is very fearful of what the slaves could do, not just be, and, you know, they're looking back to what John, what happened with John Brown, but they're also looking at Nat Turner and the different rebellions, and they're very fearful of that. So they really tried to keep them in check. Yeah, and so Robert at this time, he's he's not living by himself. He's living with a woman. Her name is Eliza Ancrum, who's Henry McKee's sister-in-law. That's who he's staying with. So instead of traditional labor, Robert is going to be basically leased out to people in the town to do odd jobs for money. You know, he had a job at a waiter. He was a waiter to play at the Planters Hotel. Yep. Um, basically working the DQ drive through at Charleston. Had, you know, wow. he did that for a little while. He also was a lamplighter mm -hmm. where he basically would clean the street lamps, street yep. lamps in the city. That was one of the things he basically did. But like back in Beaufort, Robert was very personable, and, and he, for the most part, he was very well liked by everybody who came in contact with him. He was, he was very smart and very engaging. So, one time, you know, being on the water in Charleston, Robert quickly became very intrigued by the docks. He had quite an affinity much, for the water, like he did, and he he really wanted to work on a boat. Now, you know, soon later, now he's a young teen. Robert, you know, with Henry McKee's blessing is going to begin to work at the docks, loading cargo off, off ships down at the Charleston waterfront. He's going to work with both white and black men under a guy named John Simmons. Simmons loved Robert's work ethic. He mm -hmm. loved his personality. By all accounts, Robert Small was very engaging. He was a yeah. type of guy you could just talk to. He was fun to be around. Simmons taught Smalls a lot about how to, how to sail a boat. He taught him how to tie, no, uh, tie knots. He taught him how to, uh, to make rope lines. He later gave him a job as a sailor on a local schooner. Yeah. So Robert's learning all this stuff. Smalls was also able to make a little bit of money. So, so you mentioned before, you know, he he was he would make sixteen bucks, fifteen would go to Henry. He got a dollar. Yeah, he got a That's dollar. That's what it was. Now, fast forward here a little bit. Go in the way forward machine. So you can sing that one. Ooh. No, I don't think I, you know that. other than the back, so, uh, back to the future theme. Da -da 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 -da. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> so, so fast forward a few years. Robert Smalls is now 17 years old. He's making enough money to make a pretty modest life for himself. He's he's sending most of it back, but he's, he's keeping what he has. It's around now. He's going to meet a slave girl named Hannah. Mm -hmm. Hannah, who's who's older than Robert. She's already in her mid-30s, and she has three children. Yeah. Now, Hannah was a washer. And she was owned by a guy named Samuel Kingman, 
who was a banker at a place called the Bankers, the Planters and Mechanics Bank right in town. Kent Trussell's Bankers. Fair, fair right, okay? <laughs> now, Robert was smitten with her, and he just, he wanted to marry her. The heart wants, the heart wants married, right? Now, although, although marriages among slaves were not legal, both Kingman, Hannah's owner, and yeah. Henry McKee, Robert's owner, agreed to it, thinking, well, if they're married, they're going to be less likely to escape. Yeah. They're going to be happier, maybe. I don't know. There's some kind of weird thinking with that. Like Kingman agreed to let Robert marry Hannah, but she had to pay him five bucks a month. She had he had to pay rent for Hannah. Okay, five bucks a month. Okay, so on Christmas Eve, 1856, guess what happens? Robert and Hannah, they're going to get themselves married at Henry McKee's uh, place on Prince Street. In Beaufort. Now, when they after that, they're going to return to Charleston to continue their jobs. Now, within two years. You know, life, you know, life finds a way, Mary, mm-hmm. a daughter, Elizabeth is born and suddenly Robert has a family. Now, as soon as he realizes he has a family, guess what happens? All those fears come back. Yeah. The fear of, of being separated, like that they could just take his wife and child, you know, and sell them at the auction, right? Down at the exchange. His, Hannah, Hannah and, and, and Elizabeth, the daughter, he, the, the worst nightmare for Robert is, is, is they were going to be taken. He literally would come home from work every day, and when he saw them, he thanked God because that, he thought this yeah. could be the day they could be gone. Could you imagine living with that fear? And that's what it was. I can't even imagine. Like I can't even imagine that. And I've been down. Like I think the exchange is still there, and I'm picturing it right now. Like oh, yeah. what it looks and, and like. My them. my biggest fear is coming home and all the beer being gone. That's my biggest fear. Has that ever happened? No, no, absolutely not. Never in this establishment. But but Robert, you know, what, what happened was Robert wondered if there was a way, if he could save enough money, maybe he could buy yeah. Hannah and Elizabeth, you know, buy their freedom, not really freedom, but from Kingman. And Kingman said, you know what? Okay, you give me eight hundred dollars, okay, and you and you can and you can have them. Yeah, which is the equivalent so eight- to twenty four thousand dollars in today's funds. It's big money, especially when most of your money is is, 99% of it's going away. But for Smalls, family was everything, and he Mm -hmm. was going to do whatever it took to keep them together. Now, knowing it was going to take forever to raise that money and and, and that Kingman could void the deal at any moment, which he could, Robert began to think, well, maybe is escaping with the family a possibility? Now, all this is going on right around 1860. The 1860 election is brewing. And politically, Charleston is a complete and utter quagmire. Oh, it is. It is. Like, they're so worried right now. Like, things things become even not great for the freedmen there, um, as well as the slaves. Um, So, Because, as I was saying earlier, the South fears revolts like John Brown's, like Nat Turner, all of that. Um, So slaves were no longer allowed to travel from plantation to plantation to visit each other. Keep in mind, when families were separated, sometimes they figured out where they were and they could go visit each other. They stopped that. Um, Rumors start flying around the state that um, they may confiscate um, freed slaves' property and return them to slavery. It was getting really, really bad in South Carolina. It was. I mean, Charleston was a mess. Northern and Southern Democrats were, you know, they had split, and and before you knew it, Abraham Lincoln, the guy with the hat, yeah. he's going to find I'm himself familiar. being elected president. Okay, December twentieth, eighteen sixty, at one fifteen p.m. in downtown Charleston, Charleston is going to vote South Carolina. I mean, to secede from mm-hmm. the Union, and after the secession vote is in, 
Charleston, it turns into Mardi, Mardi Gras, yeah. right? Bells rang out, people were jumping up and down, you know, um, jumping on parking meters, having a great old time, right? <laughs> and, and so there was a there was a correspondent from the Boston Post who was down there, and he wrote that um, Charleston was a double distilled Fourth of July. He called it. So you can imagine what that must wow. have been like, right? So April twelfth, eighteen sixty one. Okay, you know what happened? There was fireworks yep. in Charleston Harbor that day. Yeah, oh, big time heard. fireworks lit by right. none other than PGT Beauregard. Yep, or Beauregard. Smalls. Robert Smalls is now 22 years old, and he's going to witness this bombardment, the Charleston Mercury. They're going to call this bombardment a splendid pyrotechnic exhibition, they called it. That was a big game, a big party. Yeah. By now, the Smalls family had grown to include a new baby, Robert Jr., mm -hmm. who was two months old. He um, was born pre previously in February. Now, while trying to raise his 800 bucks for Kingman, uh, Smalls, in, in June of 1861, he got a new job, and he's trying to pick up as many jobs as he can because he wants to raise this money to, to get the family away from him. He's going to become a deckhand on a, in, in a crewman on a ship called the Planter. Now, he's going to be basically earning 16 bucks a month now, which, of course, 15 goes to McKee, yeah. so he's only getting a dollar, and he's going to work for the boat's owner, a guy named John Ferguson. In August of 1861, the U.S. is going to enact the first Confiscation Act. Now, mm -hmm. this is going to allow the Union to seize, to seize slaves. This is all part of that thing with, with Butler down in New Orleans, right, yeah. and all that area, where, you know, basically you had the um, – if, if a slave escaped, you didn't have to give him back anymore. The Fugitive Slave Act was, was a done deal. Yeah. And Butler called it the phrase contraband. It comes from Benjamin Butler, right? Mm -hmm. So if any – what that meant was any slave that reached the Union lines was free. There's no obligation anymore – for the union to send them back. So this was all happening, and the word of this was spreading throughout the slave community. Yeah. If you can get it, if you can get the GTFO and get to union lines, you know, we're, we're done. Yeah. Small is going to continue that jo his job on the planter, and, uh, and one of his tasks now included a promotion to a wheelman, yeah. which meant he was taught how to drive the ship. Well, he was talented with that anyway, because Simmons, if you remember back to when we were talking about him a few minutes ago, um, he said the boy's got to make the makings of a pilot ever seen him at mm -hmm. the bar when the tide's going out instead of dropping the anchor and waiting for high tide. He just backs up the ship and rides in on in with the swell. He's very talented with boats and that is going to come in very, very handy for smalls. The planter this is not the SS Minnow here. No. This is a big boat it's, here. Yeah, it's, it's huge. It's a 147 <laughs> foot long steamer it is being and it's not it's owned by John Ferguson but it's being leased to the Confederacy. Basically, mm -hmm. he's receiving money from the Rebs. For the most part, the planter was, was designed to transport men and materials and weapons yeah. around Charleston Harbor. Now, it, wasn't, it was not a warship. It, it, was, it was a transport yeah. ship. Now, um, it was captained by a guy named Charles Relia, and he had two officers, Samuel Hancock, who was the first mate, and Samuel Pitcher, who was yeah. the engineer. Now, none of these three grew up in the north. And they weren't not they were not enlisted Confederate officers. No. They were basically private contractors hired by the owner, John Ferguson, who leased the boat off of the Confederacy. So none of these people were Confederate soldiers or anything. Relia was a New Yorker, but instead of a faded New York Yankees championship hat from days <laughs> long ago, Mary, the he last century. Very, he wore a very distinctive white, uh, wide-brimmed straw hat. That, that he wore when he rode the planter on the harbor. It was a big, it was a very unique looking hat. Yeah, and they could not see 
like you know obviously cannot make out his face and stuff but they can see his figure as right. he's going on the boat which is gonna so you so it kind of hit his face and well you're right yeah. so now the the union blockade was in full swing in in charleston harbor but like with many other southern harbors were blocked by union navy mm-hmm. and so you couldn't get into them Speaking of the U.S. Navy, real quick, while this is all going on, okay, on October 29, 1861, the largest armada by the U.S. Navy left Fort Monroe at Hampton Roads, Virginia, yeah. and they're going to go south to Charleston because they want to capture a deep water harbor to set up a base that they, that they so they can set up operations. And they're going to find it at Port Royal Island, South Carolina, which is right pissing distance from Small's hometown in Beaufort. Yeah, and that's it's where right his there. mom still is, too. Right. And so that, so it's all kind of coming back to coming to him here. We're talking 12,000 men, 75 boats. They're going to cruise into Port Royal under the command of a 50 year old, six foot four Delaware guy. His name is Samuel Francis DuPont. Mm-hmm. And the land forces were under command of a guy named Thomas Sherman, no relation, no. from Rhode Island. And by early 1861, November, I mean, the Union combined Army and Navy force, the Marines, if you think about it. Yeah had a, a, a base set up at Port Royal, which is just 60 miles away from Charleston. Now, when the Union landed in Port Royal, Mary, the residents, you can imagine what, in Beaufort, what they, Beaufort, what they did. Oh, I'm sure they right? were thrilled. I mean, they, 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 they took off. They ran like hell. They left their yep. property, including their slaves. But, you know, they slept them behind and, and basically sent the city of Charleston into a complete panic mm-hmm. in fear of this imminent Union invasion. Now, don't forget, too, the psychological effects of Charleston being attacked. This was where it all started. So they figured, you know, you read Mary Chestnut's diary. They were in constant fear of being hit because of where they were and who they were. So when this 12,000-man Army-Navy armada lands in Port Royal and sets up shop 60 miles away, everyone, no one in Charleston did for the most part, but the people in Beaufort, they just turned and walked away. They said, the hell with this. They left their property. Well, we're going to get to that here a little yeah. later of what happens. Um, George McClellan, the guy we talked about, the short yeah. guy with the hand on the sleeve, right? The short guy. <laughs> you know, he says of, of Charleston, the greatest moral effect would be produced by the reduction of Charleston. So you can see the anger they have towards the mm-hmm. city and the people in Charleston. They knew it. Yeah. May of 1862, the Union commander of the South, David Hunter, we talked about him before. He's going to piss off Abraham Lincoln by issuing his own Emancipation Proclamation, yep. which was rescinded in South Carolina and Georgia. But he's an abolitionist, and he's down there too. While this is all going on, through it all, Smalls, <laughs> except for the fact that raising 800 bucks was a pipe dream, was a fool's errand, the only way to get out was to escape. He, he was slowly coming around to the reality that he had to. Now, one guy escaping was hard enough. But it takes an entire family, including two small children. Yeah. I mean, take take a small children of the airport, take them to Disney World. You see what the hell that's like. Now, trying to sneak them out of, out of slavery. It was pretty much <laughs> impossible because he knew if he was caught, what was going to happen? His family was going to get separated. Yep. And that was – so you want to talk about a zero-sum game. It was either freedom or he lost everything he was most afraid of. But I think he saw that it was worth it. Like, they knew the risks with what escaping meant. And, you know, I'm thinking right now of Harriet Tubman. Of course, everybody with her knew that, too. Like, this is really risky, but it's worth it for freedom. 
And, and no question about it. Smalls is going to spend the next couple of days trying to figure out a way how to do it. Now, one day, and this is this is where history just these stories will make history great. One day, he's sitting around the boat with a handful of black deckhands yeah. on the planter. Captain Relio, he was away, and they noticed the captain's that distinctive white brimmed, that wide brimmed, big straw hat. He always left it on the boat and was on the wheel of the planter. And he just he just never the boat the hat always stayed on the boat. It just always did. Yeah. Now one of the crew is going to pick up the hat as a joke, and they're going to stick it on Small's head, and everyone starts laughing at him. And then one of the crew, because of his body type, he's chunky now. Yeah. He's going to look at me. He's going to say, "You look just like the captain." And at that very moment, a light bulb goes off in his head. Yeah. And he thinks he's this like, might ah. be the way. Yeah. All because somebody as a gag put a hat on him mm-hmm. he thought of an idea that this might actually work yeah. and then he began to work towards it yeah and right they start to plan it and they actually nobody knows for sure where it was all planned like once the joke happened then they had to like meet somewhere else you know but apparently they eventually gathered in small's room on east bay street that's one of the places where they thought and they come up with this plan and they're going to take, you know, obviously Small's wife and his two small children with them. Um, and then there was a couple other women as well as another child, too, that they were going to take with them to escape um, using yeah. the planter. Yeah, well, yeah there, was a, there was a whole go of that in a few minutes, a whole bunch of people. Yeah. But the entire plan was based on disguising himself yeah. with a hat. Yeah. With a straw hat. The whole thing so rested crazy. on that. And it just goes to, I wear hats all the time. Now you know why it's important there. You never need to make an escape, right? So he knew this. If he if he did this, it might just work. So he's going to, Smalls is going to go home. He's going to tell Hannah about this plan. Now, her life, as well as her her children's lives, depended on this too. So they, yeah. he knew they had to buy into this. They had to agree to it. Hannah's going to ask Robert, you know, Robert, what's going to happen if we're caught? And Robert says, I'll be shot. And then Hannah says, it's a risk, dear, but you but you and I, the little ones, must be free. If you go and you die, I die too. And that's what she said to him. Wow. And so it's on like Donkey Kong at this point. Yeah. Now they're, they're going to go for it. With Hannah's buy-in, Smalls knew he had to convince the crew as well. The crew, I'm going to read off these names just, just because they deserve mm-hmm. their names being read. Abram Alston, Samuel Chisholm, Alfred Gordine, Abraham Jackson, William Morrison, Gabriel Turner, John Small, plus Anna and Lavinia White. These are girlfriends of some of the crew. Yeah. Boys, we boys marry. They all agreed to go. Uh, there were some people they didn't invite for fear they would run their mouths. Yeah. But this was going to be the primary people who all agreed we're, we, we, run, we ride or die here. This is it. Now, early in the morning of May 12, 1862, the planter was being used to remove cannon from a place called Coles Island mm-hmm. near the mouth of the Steno River. And, and what they would do is they would load these cannon onto the steamer, onto the planter, near, uh, and they were going to take them to James Island uh, near Charleston. And this, they were going to be used for the defenses of Fort Sumter. Many of the troops were being taken away to fight in different places, so they were going to def- they were going to defend the city with cannon. And yeah. so they were moving cannon around. They put all these boats on the planter. And these guns at this point were irreplaceable. 40-pound-inch uh, rifle gun, 8-inch column uh, Columbiad, 8-inch howitzer, 32-pound rifle, 10-inch Columbiad, and 200 pounds of ammo. 
they were all on the planter being put on there for transport. The Confederate guy in Charles, in charge, his name is Ripley Roswell. He's a commander of the 2nd Military mm-hmm. District, which was the, the, in charge of Charleston. He's going to be under the overall command of the Department of Georgia and South Carolina under General John C. Pemberton. Mm-hmm. Remember him? Yep. Sneaking out these weapons in this, with this huge, with this valuable intel of, of the fact that Steno River was now open because the guns were gone was something that was a, be a huge get for the Union, too, and Smalls is going to know this. Because these boats, the Union Armada is just off the coast. Yeah. So one thing Smalls did not have, though, was the element of surprise. And this is kind of where you get unlucky. Just two weeks before he's going to leave, in late April, 15 slaves, you know what they do? They steal a barge, yeah. and they sh- they sail out, and they get to the Union fleet. And Smalls, I mean, it was extremely embarrassing for General Ripley, um, Roswell. So repeating this effort was going to be a huge effort because now now the radar is up now because they know this is a way that it can happen. The other thing that was working against Small was the presence of the Union troops in Fort Royal I talked yeah. about. For that reason, you know, Jefferson Davis, there was always that rumor that they was going to impose martial law in Charleston. Yeah because of how close those 12,000 troops were. If he did, it would have made it very difficult because everything would have been watched, everything. One thing that did work for him though, it's funny how these things work, was those three officers I mentioned, you're talking Relia, Pitcher, and Hancock. They didn't really care about the rules too much. There was an order called General Order Number 5. You know what it said? It said that they had to, white officers had to stay on their boats overnight when it was yep. docked. And you know what they said? Nope, not me. Yep. So they would go home to wherever their homes were, their families were, and they would spend the night in the mm. city and leave the boat unoccupied. So this gave, this, there was an opportunity here for Smalls for that reason. Because the ship was usually watched by guards, they couldn't bring the women and children on the boat. So they kind of had to have him set up elsewhere. Yeah, and they were going to basically set, pick uh, them up on the way. Right, we'll get to that in a second. But um, so for Smalls to make this work, he had to get on the boat, get it going, get it, get it moving, go pick up the family, you know, on the way, yeah. and then go. So this is not a this is not a milk run. Regardless, Smalls knew it was go time. It was three o'clock in the morning on May 13, 1861. The crew was going to prep the planter to leave and they had to do so very very quiet they had to do it because if they drew any attention because rally is not there if someone says where's your captain well i don't know if they would notify him and the whole thing would fall apart so they slowly pull away from the dock and they rose the confederate stars and bars flag as well as the state of south carolina flag on the mast of the ship smalls is going to grab that hat that wide-brimmed you know, straw hat. He's yeah. gonna pull it on, pull it down over his eyes to color his the, the color of his skin to hide it. Yeah, he's also and got the gonna... uniform on too, because right. the captain a... left his right. uniform behind. And he's gonna slowly start to slip away, and they're gonna they're gonna be we're we're, we're in for it now. Yeah, they're gonna stop at a nearby boat, a place called the Etowan, and they're gonna pick up the family. Uh, and they were right there waiting for them where they were hiding. And next thing you know, so far so good. They've got the family. They've got everyone on board. They start to go. Yeah. Smalls, you can imagine, his heart must have been racing. He probably wanted to hit the gas and go. Oh, some of them were. Keep... Some of them were freaking out. Like the women, uh, some some of the women I was reading, they they first freaked out, 
and then the guys are like no it's going to be okay and then when they calm down when they realize like yes this is for freedom you know I, I think what they had front of mind is oh my god we're going to be punished for this like what's going to happen we're going to get separated but when when they realized what the end result could be that it was freedom it made it so worth it for them to oh, do and abs- this. Oh, it absolutely did. And they all agreed to it. Smalls had to keep that normal pace going through the harbor. He, yeah. couldn't, he couldn't fire it he up. Can't he had to be it. quiet. <laughs> so just about 4.15 in the morning, they're going to, from the pre-dawn haze, they're going to see Fort Sumter start to show up on the horizon. Yep. Now, at this moment, the lives of Robert Smalls, as well as his family, um, the next moments would literally literally determine their lives. Just imagine that. I the couldn't imagine. The tendency of your life is going to determine everything. I couldn't imagine so, that because every time they, they had to go past all these forts, and every time they did, they had to give a certain signal, and Robert knew them all. Well, right. So so they, they, they're they going, and they see Sumter. Sumter, yeah. Sumter was the big one. Literally, freedom or death would soon be decided by their actions and the behavior of Robert Smalls. For Smalls, if there was a pucker effect, he didn't show it. Yeah, He was cute, cool as a cucumber. Now, Alfred Gordine, one of the guys I mentioned who was on the boat, he's one of the crew members. He's going he's gonna to say after this, when we drew near the fort, every man but Smalls felt his knees giving away, and the women below deck were crying on their knees praying. Mm-hmm. So just just put yourself in that situation. Imagine this what, what this this moment. It's not it's not a tough imagination to think about this. Smalls is going to approach Sumter wearing that hat and that uniform. As he drew closer, he you would kind of reference this. He blew the planter's whistle, and this is when riding paying attention gets you where you need to go. Yeah, he knew the Confederate signal was two long blows of the horn, followed by one short one. Yeah, and that that's how they knew. So the Confederate guard, he's going to look down. He's going to hear it. He's going to see the boat. They were familiar with the boat. They were familiar with Relio with the hat. He's going to yell down to Smalls, blow the damn Yankees to hell and bring one of them in. Yep. And Smalls simply yells, aye, aye. And at that very moment, Smalls is approaching Fort Sumter. Guess what happens? Captain Reyes shows up at the dock. Yep. And he sees the planters gone. Whether he said, dude, where's my boat? We don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. But the, but the boat was gone. And, but here's, here's where you got lucky, too. For whatever reason, Relia doesn't tell anybody right away. I don't know if he's looked under rugs. He's, he just, whatever God. the hell it is. He, it takes, if, if he would have signaled then in contact of the fort, yep. the whole thing might have blown up. Yeah. But for whatever reason, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't tell anybody right away. Smalls is going to continue his pace towards the Atlantic. Now Fort Sumter is in his rearview mirror, but he's expecting at any moment to hear the roar of the cannon firing at him. Yep. Just at any moment. The Rebs watch the planter. Now, normally it would go and it would, it would take a left or it would take a right. Yeah. Because that's that, you know, that's how it has to go. Morris Island, James Island. Because it never went out to sea because that's where the Union boats were. Well, they're sitting there and all of a sudden they're watching the planter and they don't put the signals on, it just keeps going straight. And they all went, fuck. Yeah. They just knew. They knew, but so by the time they realized, they were out of range. They couldn't do anything. They they were done. Now, out of range of the rebel cannon, Smalls had one big pain in the ass that he still had to deal with, right? Yeah. And that was he had no guarantee the Union ships weren't going to fire him either. So he's got to do like a switcheroo of the flag on the boat. 
So the men are going to run upstairs. They're going to take down the Confederate flag yeah. and the Carolina flag. And they're going to hang up a big white bedsheet. Which had been brought by Hannah, Small's wife. Right. So it's for surrender. And they, they were lucky with that. Yeah. So it's it's sunrise. It's dawn. It's foggy on the ocean. It's April um, or whatever it is, the springtime. And, and they're approaching a boat and they see it in the fog. And this is a boat called the Onward. Mm-hmm. And on the Onward's deck stood a captain. His name was John F. Nichols mm-hmm. from Maine. And he saw the approaching planter and he yelled to his men, all hands to fire. Because that's what you're going to yeah. do, right? Smalls is going to saw the Union men running to their gun stations, and he thought, "Jesus, to get this close, yeah, I'm going to get blown up by this, you know, just to be killed by what he considered friendly fire because it just would not, just it's just too hard." Right before the onward is going to open up on them, Nichols is going to see that white flag, and he's going to yell to his men to stand down. And all of a sudden, Smalls is going to see this, and they're all going to stop. And at that moment, it's celebration time. Yeah, Smalls and his men—they're going to start jumping up and down. They're going to start dancing. You know, who knows? You just—you can only imagine. Just call the, me maybe Labatt's time. Blue, no, it probably wasn't. All call the me Labatt's, maybe time. Labatt's blue is probably broken <laughs> out. They're probably passing around. <laughs> and so, um, the planter is going to steer up to the onward, and Smalls is going to yell to Nichols, "Good morning, sir. I brought you some of your old U.S. guns that were for Fort Sumter." That is amazing. And then he, he said that. And then he and then he asked Nichols if he could borrow a U.S. flag that raised on the planter. Yeah. And I always liked that part of the story. Well, I thought that was really, really, really cool that he did that. Yeah. When Nichols heard what Smalls had done, he was stunned. Equally stunned was General Roswell back at back in yep. Charleston, right? Ruby Roswell, because he learned he had lost the planter, yep. but he was pissed because he lost all those guns. That's why he was mad. John Ferguson, the planter's owner, was angrier than you were when you had, when I tell you to mix in a water once in a while. Right, he was livid because he lost his boat. Oh, he's the boat owner, and he wasn't getting anything back. He lost everything. Yeah. Um, Ripley Roswell had to tell his boss John C. Pemberton. I mean, he had to pass. He had to let him know. Pemberton had to pass on the news to Jefferson Davis' military advisor, who happened Robert Lee. Yeah, what had happened? Oh, Lee and was pissed. The shitstorm of Small's escape caused a huge ripple in the Confederate Army. Because yeah. of Small's escape, Pemberton was transferred to the Western Theater, which is how he ends up at Vicksburg. Well, how does just that work out for, for them? Just in time for Grant's the, the <laughs> culmination of the siege. But because of Robert Smalls, that's how Pemberton ends up at Vicksburg. That is such like, and Lee sends him this like this message that he said very much reg- generally very much regrets the circumstances and hopes measures will be taken to prevent any repetition of a like misfortune. Because they, and we're going to talk about this, they lose a lot with this, with what Smalls has done. And the, the Union actually gains quite a bit, which is part of the story that's not talked about. But we talked before when we were talking to Alex Rose, the Union was trying everything possible to get boats. And so you had, that's why you had a lot of these little tugboats and a lot of these other boats that were, that were being taken by the Union Army. And the Confederates for that matter too. So a boat was a big, big deal. In the North, Smalls was a national hero. David Hunter, in charge of the Department of the South, as well as Samuel Dupont, mm-hmm. felt Smalls was entitled to a reward for delivering the boat. And for that reason, Smalls is going to pick up a cool $1,500. Nice. Even though he should have got a lot more. Oh, absolutely. Um, but but Robert Smalls' story, though, I mean, that most people, when you think of Robert Smalls, that's the story you know. Yeah. But to quote but to quote the ShamWow guy in the commercial, but wait, there's more. There is. There's, 
There's more with this. His story goes on. And so after dropping off the family, which is now union control, Beaufort, um, you know, Thomas, Thomas Sherman, you know, is going to be in charge of Beaufort. Now, Smalls is going to be given a job as a pilot on the planter, which is now a U.S. ship. He's going to be a transport guy. That's awesome. They kept the ship in service. Like that. Oh, it is. It's just so cool. Now in Beaumont and throughout the Port Royal Island, the land and plantations were no longer the property of those white Southern plantation owners, right? The land was given to the slaves under Thomas Sherman. Schools were set up and Sherman began to work on something called the Port Royal experiment, which is, which was, which was, which basically was preparing new freed blacks how to assimilate in society. Yeah. And there was kind of like a little commune that was, it was kind of, that's how, how it was. The big fish for the union army was to seize Charleston. They still wanted it. Yeah. And Smalls found himself a part of that. Lincoln's emancipation proclamation went into effect on January 1st, 1863. And by April, a plan was hatched for naval assault on the city of Charleston. Now DuPont and his Navy, they were concerned about the city's defenses and didn't think the ironclads would stand much of a chance just because he said Charleston Harbor, and I quote now, was a good deal like a porcupine hide and quills turned outside in. That's how he felt it was. April 7th, DuPont knew he had to attack regardless because he knew that the rebels, the rebel guns at Fort Sumter, uh, Castle Pinckney, Fort Ripley, and Fort Moultrie, they were waiting with bated breath for this attack. They knew it was coming. Yeah. So Smalls is going to be a pilot now in a boat called the Keokuk, which is captained by a guy named A.C. Rind. Now, when the, the attack is going to begin, now when the attack begins, DuPont's fears were realized as his navy was pounded. The, the boat, the uh, the Keok, the Keok with with um, Smalls piloting was hit by ninety shells. Oh my gosh! And bailed, bailed miserably. Awful. DuPont was, of course, immediately canned and replaced by John Dahlgren, right? The father of the Dahlgren yep. raid guy. And, 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 and as was David Hunter was giving all heave-ho too. The loss of DuPont was especially tough on Smalls because why? This is the guy who was the mentor of him yep. that allowed him to keep piloting mm-hmm. and help him earn a living as that pilot. Now, regardless, you know, Smalls maintained his job as a pilot through 1863 and he's earning 75 bucks a month now as a pilot of the planter, which is big money because now it's all his. Yep. He doesn't worry about it anymore. He had the reputation of being really smart and he found himself being interviewed by a commission set up by Edwin Stanton of all people because he wanted to investigate the condition of the free blacks to determine what the government needed to do to help them become self-sufficient. Yep. Okay, Smalls was asked 37 questions and these are ridiculous questions such as, I picked up my favorites. The slaves want to be free was a question. What? The even more absurd, the black families have affection for each other. These are the questions that they were asked. Oh my God. Smalls, with all the freedmen, answered all these questions. And the government said, shit, we better do something. So in March 1865, jumping ahead real quick before we jump back, Congress is going to create something called the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen and Abandoned Lands, yep. which is going to be loaned later as the Freedmen's Bureau. Yep. And because of Smalls, him being part of that that questions, those that committee, it helps set that up. By summer of 1863, Smalls' task was transporting troops from Folly Island to rebel-held Morris Island because they're still trying to think of another way to attack Charleston. Yeah. To do so, the men of Morris Island would have to destroy two batteries. One was Fort Battery Greg, 
Yeah. The other was what? Wagner. Battery Wagner. Yeah. Standing 1,500 feet away from Fort Sumter. If they could take these batteries, Fort Sumter was right within their range. July 1863, the troops in place, partly thanks to Small, who transported them, the new commander, Quincy Gilmore, would begin his glorious assault, as they say, on Battery Wagner, yeah. spearheaded by the 54th Mass. Yeah. Smalls is one of the guys transporting these guys Wow. here. It all comes full circle eventually. It, it just it just does when you, when you think about it. it. It just really, really does. When you think last week seven... we're talking about the blockade and Smalls runs into the blockade. That's who kind of rescues him. And now we're, you know, we did an episode about the 54th and he's the one that right. transports some of them. I mean, it took seven weeks to fall, but eventually yeah. the Union is going to prevail. Heading into the fall now, they're still struggling to take Charleston. Smalls, through it all, is still transporting men and supplies on his planter from Folly Island to Morris Island as part of the war effort. That's what he's doing. I mean, as you can imagine, as much of a hero as he was in the North, Smalls was vilified and a wanted man in the South. Oh. They knew they would love to get their hands on this guy. I do not like was, him at all. He, because all, because everything Smalls did was in the Northern Papers. They made the Yankee papers, Mary. Yep. And they saw this and it was like sticking the nose at him. Well, he was in and Harper's so one, Weekly, like after this, after the initial, you know, taken when he was rescued and all that. And when he, you know, made the escape, like Harper's Weekly said, one of the most daring and heroic adventures since the war began. Yeah. Um, and he's in like some New York papers as well, like saying like how brave he is and all this other stuff and the south just they hate it because you have to remember you know come back to our discussion with alex rose just how much the confederates needed boats if they lose just one in 1862 that is a huge loss because it's not just the loss of a boat it's the loss of ammo it's the loss of some guns right um on that boat was also um a book the captain had a book on there of sig of signals and maps of where the torpedoes were in Charleston. And not only that, they get uh, Robert Smalls who knows Charleston Harbor probably better than anybody. Right. I mean, you know? it was the right guy at the right time. You know, and the thing is, is every time Smalls went on the, on the water, he was taking his life into his hands. He, he just yeah. was, he just, for a million different reasons. So one day Smalls is piling the planter and they're passing a place called Secessionville, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. It's right, it's right along those rivers, and the Rebs are firing on the boat. And the captain of the planter, now don't forget, he's not the captain, he's just the pilot, right? Yeah. The captain completely freaked out mm -hmm. when they were fired upon, and he ran and hid under deck. Yeah. That's what he did. Um, and the the um it was a guy named JJ Elwell. He was the captain of the planter. They're getting fired upon from Secessionville. He goes to roll him up and he runs and yeah. hides. What does Smalls do? He takes the boat over. Yeah. And so he's going to take it out of, he's going to sail it to safety. He's going to steam it away. He knows the rivers. He knows how to get away. He gets away and he succeeds. And, and so what happens is um, once this happens, once, once the word gets out of that, he saved the boat and what happened with Elwell immediately, um, What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen is is El I'm sorry, Elwell's the captain. He was basically Elwell was a guy who was um, he was he was a, he was a quartermaster. Yeah. I take that he wasn't a captain. I, I yeah. screwed that up. He, he was a, he was a quartermaster. The boat falls onto the quartermaster. That's who he is. Yeah. He's not part of the navy. He's a quartermaster. Elwell's gonna promote him to be captain mm -hmm. of the boat. So in so basically in two years, 
two years Smalls goes from a deckhand slave to a captain. He'll be the first blast black captain yeah. of a U.S. Army vessel because of this. And when this news came out, it went viral. And the people in the South just cringed too. Oh, yeah. Because everything, he's like the Forrest Gump of the, of the Union. Whatever he does, it just works. It just, it just, it just, right? I'll say this so, much. He's certainly not overrated. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> but, but now, because he was a quartermaster, he was a civilian. There's going to be a push now to make Smalls yeah. a military officer. Captain Daniel Foster, who's a white officer in the 17th USCT, he's going to write to a newspaper called The Liberator. And he's going to say, there is no reason why Robert Smalls should not be rewarded to the rank as an officer in our mm. glorious army. Up here in Boston, a speech at the, at the Tremont Temple, right, around, right, right next yep. to the old, uh, right next to Beantown Pub, Mary. Yep. I've been there many, many times. Very familiar what? with Tremont Street as well. I travel yep. on that quite a bit. A a Abolitionist Wendell Phillips. Mm -hmm. He has a statue over there on the common. He's going to mention Smalls in a speech in Boston, calling him the hero of Charleston. So this is the, the rare air now that Robert Smalls is getting to. Back in Beaufort, things are progressing under Thomas Sherman's plan. And when the, basically when the, when the locals left, the, the Union troops seized Port, Char mm -hmm. Port Royal and their homes fell behind as far as taxes go. Yeah. So just, just imagine the Rebs all leave, all the, all, the, all the Southerners go, their houses are not paying taxes. So what happens? The union is going to sell their houses to pay their tax. You fall behind your tax. We saw with Robert E. Lee yeah. in Arlington, right? So what's going to happen is these houses are going to fall and they're going to be put for sale. And one house that became particularly attractive for Smalls was guess which house? 511 Prince yeah. Street. Henry McKee's old house where he, was, where he grew up as a house slave. His bid was accepted. And so subtly, Robert Smalls was the owner of the house where he and his mother were forced to sleep in a meager slave quarters. Yeah. Now, suddenly he talks about how he walked into the front door and slept in the main bedroom versus sleeping in the back. And he yeah. owned the house and how life had become full circle for him. Not only was Smalls an accomplished pilot and captain, he was an absolute sensation in the North. He was asked to speak regularly at these functions um, to tell his story of what happened. Yeah. May of 1864, Smalls is gonna is gonna take the planter to Philadelphia. Not for a Super Bowl parade, obviously, Mary. <laughs> I don't want to bring bring a bad memory for anybody. <laughs> but but he's they're gonna go to Philly for repairs. The planter's yeah. been taken on some water, they're gonna repair it. And the trip is gonna re require he stays in Philly for seven whole months to fix this. And while he's there, he's asked to give all these speeches to these big crowds. Yeah. He's a writer. He's a, don't forget too. This is a guy who was self-educated. Yeah. He, he didn't, didn't learn to read as a child. And so he's going to stay there and he's, he's going to see some, he's going to see some real bad racism. And he, he's going to be in Philadelphia. They're not going to let him ride a train. They're going to make him ride outside. This He's going to, racism wasn't just in the South people. It, no, it was, it was, it was okay. very, very bad in the right? North as well. And so he, he, he experienced a lot in Philadelphia. I'm not that guy digress with more stories about that, but suffice it to say, he had a tough time with people in mm -hmm. Philadelphia. He just did. So when the plant was repaired, um, he's going to return to Port Royal, and he's going to arrive on Christmas Eve, 1864. Now, I don't know if you know this, Mayor, but something happened nearby in Savannah on that day. Did they go in the back yeah, door of Savannah? There, there was an angry ginger and 60,000 of his friends had just arrived from marching from Atlanta. In the back door of Savannah. Mm -hmm. through, the, through the back door, you know, <laughs> through the back door. <laughs> 
This is William T. Sherman, Mary, not Thomas Sherman. This is William T. Okay, and Robert Robert Small's worlds are going to collide here. Okay, if you remember, on December 9th, a rather unfortunate event took place at Ebenezer Creek, yep. where 650 slaves who had been following Sherman's army were abandoned by Jefferson C. Davis to either drown or be captured by yep. Joseph Wheeler, the war child, his cavalry. And because of Sherman's march, the town of Beaufort was absolutely filled with black refugees who had moved into the area uh, of, the, of the sea islands near Port Royal. So a lot of them did get there. Now the whole area is, is filled, right? Most of these people arrived with just the clothes on their back, these, these yeah. former slaves. They had no food. They were sick. It turned into a humanitarian crisis. And most felt that they were not treated very well by Sherman's army. Now, th- look, we like Sherman. We do. But you have to understand, this is a guy who was not an abolitionist. No. He was he was as much of a racist as anybody in the South yep. was, if not more. Yep. Okay, He just was, okay? And there were stories about how these, these people who followed them, these, these, these slaves, were mistreated. It's mm-hmm. just horrific stories. Now, uh, the story with um, the story with Ebenezer caused a real issue, to the point where Edwin Stanton had to travel to meet with Sherman at his headquarters in January of 1865. Now we talked about this in a previous episode. We're not going to yeah. get into this, but this led to a meeting where Sherman had to meet with 20 black ministers, mm-hmm. and they were asked those same 37 questions that Smalls got, same ones yep. that were tied to the, the Freedmen's Bureau's creation. The result of this meeting was that was that the portion of the land was going to be given to the freed blacks just south of Savannah would be the basis of that 40 acres and yep. a mule, that whole thing that was eventually undone by President John Johnson yep. down the road. But it, it, this is the it was going to take place in the area where, where Smalls in, in that Buford area. That's where it was going to take mm-hmm. place. Smalls and the planter would be one of the transports that was going to be used to move Sherman's men from Savannah to Beaufort. Yeah. Where they begin preparations for the for the um, the Carolinas campaign. Mm-hmm. So again, Smalls and I was moving Sherman's men yeah. out over. In Beaufort, you know, Sherman's men quickly gained a bad reputation when they got there. Oh, big time. One, one Beaufort resident said of Sherman's men, they were strange, rough-looking, unshaven, and badly dressed. These Western marauders came trampling through the streets, roaring out songs, and jokes made sharp comments of the tidy citizens. So you can just imagine how they must have been. Oh, yeah. Sherman's men treated the blacks so badly that a guy named General Rufus Saxon, he was the military governor in command of that area. He forbid any of Sherman's troops from getting into Beaufort at all. He said, stay the F out wow. of this town. That's how bad you guys are. You know. So that's how it was. Sherman's gonna, and his merry men are going to move off to Carolina soon later. Yep. But they, they were not welcome. They, that was that was a bad situation when they got down there. Yep. Yeah, and that you it's know. just, you know, just, I don't know. It goes back to the whole Carolinas campaign and all that was going on. And I mean, Ebenezer Creek is this part of the March of the Sea that I don't think gets talked about enough. And it is this thing that needs to get talked about more because it was absolutely terrible what happened there. Oh, it absolutely was. But you know what? When, when, when but here's the thing: though. Sherman had had that cult of personality, big right? time. Oh, he's so, the first. So, he's considered the first celebrity general, and he knew it. Oh, he certainly is. But but you know what though? When the people of Charleston found out that Sherman 
was close. Yeah. What do they do? They evacuate the city, you know, pretty yep. damn quick. They they get the hell off fast and you did not even running to recess back at Goddard High School. That's how fast they moved. They got the hell out. And so now Charleston, for the most part, was evacuated. Yeah. And so and so what happens is uh, the union is going to finally be able to finally move in after all these months of trying to take the city because Sherman was there. They turn and t- they took off. They're going to move in spearheaded by a guy of the 21st USCT. His name was Augustus Bennett. Mm-hmm. And, and he talks about how when, when, when the crowds, um, the crowds of, of blacks that were in the town saw these black soldiers coming in and wearing the blue uniform, they, 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 they went berserk cheering much of the disgust of Mary Chestnut. I would refer you to her diary to talk about this aspect of her life, which was not a sweet tea moment for Mary. She was not a fan of it at all. But now the path to Charleston's open, so guess what happens? Robert Smalls is finally free to reenter the city, which he did on March 10th of 1865. Smalls is going to sail the planter along with Rufus uh, Saxon we just talked about, along with uh, agents from the Freedmen's Bureau, into Charleston. Now, Small is going to pull up to the dock. A large crowd is going to be there waiting for him. He's a conquering yeah. hero. The great Robert Smalls is back. One man stared, though, looking at him, not happy. You know who it was? It was John Ferguson, yeah. the owner of the planter. Where's my dude? Where's my boat? <laughs> dude, where's my boat? <laughs> so he, he just, he did, he did exactly the Laurel and Hardy handshake yeah. waiting for him. So he was pissed off when he finally saw him again. But Small is going to, re- is going to return to Beaufort. Um, but he's going to come back to Charleston on, on April 14th, where he's going to be in charge of transporting a large number of black civilians to Fort mm-hmm. Sumter to witness Robert Anderson raise the original U.S. flag again that was taken down almost exactly four years prior. Wow. When, when Anderson rose the flag, the crowd the crowd gathered and sang, victory at last. And Smalls was there for it. Mm-hmm. Lincoln's going to be killed around here. I don't know if you know this, Mary. Really? You know, he didn't make it. So when, when Lincoln's death spread, there was that fear that, that blacks now living free would be returned to slavery. They didn't know, you know, that their masters were going to return in and around Fort Royal, Port Royal. Now, the thing about it, though, is that there was when when you when the whole thing ends of the war ended, you know, you could you could take the you could swallow the dog. Yeah. You could take the oath of allegiance. Now, if you were you, if you were a Confederate officer or you own more than twenty thousand dollars, you had to petition directly to President Johnson for a pardon. That's how it was. And this whole thing pissed a lot of people off. It, for, not to get into the whole Reconstruction thing, but suffice it to say, a lot of people didn't like Johnson for that, including no. your boy Howard. No, Howard. Right? Oh God, he Howard hated Johnson. <laughs> but what? But once this happened, <clears throat> a lot of the former. But the whites returned to Port Royal and Beaufort. One of the returnees was none other than Small's former owners, the McKees yeah. family. They came back, and and this is this is the thing that's amazing. You think about the Smalls, and he's a, he's a bigger man than I. Mm-hmm. He allowed the family to stay with them at, at, at the Prince Street house as guests of Robert Smalls. Smalls even helped. Smalls had money now. He even gave money to the family who was destitute. Yep. He even helped McKee's son gain a gain a position, a, an appointment to, to, to Annapolis in the Naval Academy. This is so he's he's helping his old family. They they go to sit down to dinner. You know what the McKees do? We don't eat with black people. 
we, we don't want to eat with you. What the hell? So he had they had to take their meals separate in his own house from the key after oh everything he God. did for them. That's how they still felt. So wow. so it just goes to show them the mentality of this stuff. Yep. And so um and so for the most part, you know, a lot of these former landowners, they wanted to get their properties back. Mm. And they were they were suing. Now, McKee didn't own the property anymore, so it wasn't him. But the owner of the house who, who who left and had the taxes paid, he sued Robert Smalls. Smalls had to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court to keep his own house, which he which of course he got. Uh, and what with all and, and and so with all these land disputes going on, all this shit going on, um, a Union general, named Oliver Otis Howard, Mary Howard, was he he appointed a commission of the Freedmen's Bureau yep. to head to Beaufort in May of eighteen sixty five. To find out what the hell is going on and help settle this this issue with these land suits, mm-hmm. Howard is going to appoint Rufus Saxon to basically oversee the Sea Islands and, and you know and for the blacks to make sure they help secure their land to keep their land, and and, and they, they did. Many of the Civil War generals felt that President Johnson was purposely making Reconstruction difficult for the blacks, oh, including one Dan, including one Dan Sickles, Mary, mm-hmm. who was commanding the second military district covering North and South Carolina at the time. Sickles, you know what he did? He personally um, nullified all the black codes that Johnson put in for South Carolina, North Carolina. He wow. wiped them all out and said, nope, we ain't doing it. Yeah, there was a few so of them this- working against Johnson. And I, I know Howard was like, I can't get anything done in the Freedmen's Bureau because of this guy. But one person who did not agree, like, who was like, this is all okay, was Sherman with what was Yeah, going. well, like, it, yeah, it, but, but, but all this land, this area that in mm-hmm. Port Royal, it was all under dispute to the point where it was a focal point. Smalls was still running transports on the planter when he soon found out that John Ferguson, the owner of the plant, former owner of the planter, um, had gotten a pardon himself. And guess what he wants? He wants his boat back. Johnson gave him a pardon, so now Ferguson was allowed to try to sue Smalls to get his, to get the boat. Now Smalls didn't own it; it no. was a government's property. But he but he wanted the boat back. 1866, the planter gets decommissioned by the United States government and is put up for auction. Yeah, Smalls sailed the planter to Baltimore for the auction. This is going to be the last time he ever sailed it. This is going to uh-huh. be it. September of 1866, the planter is going to get purchased by a guy named Moses Mordecai. Yep. You know what he does when he buys the boat? Puts it into the service he trans- of the Freedmen's he, he Bureau. He transfers it. He tra- no, he tra- oh. he's a Southerner. He oh. transfers the title to who? John Ferguson. Oh, God. He gave the boat to Ferguson. So, so Ferguson got the boat back. Now, back in Beaufort, Smalls is going to open a store with a former black pastor named Richard Gleaves. Now, and he he basically at this point he's getting older. He wants the best for his children, like we yeah. all do. And he's going to demand that his kids be educated, and spent most of his money educating his kids and putting them through college. Now, eventually, you know, Small, Smalls is going to decide to, to basically press his luck into politics. Mm-hmm. It was successful. He was a five-time elected representative from South Carolina from 1875 to 1887. His daughter Elizabeth, guess what, was his secretary. Nice. Right. So before retiring from Congress, he had one thing he wanted to do. This was his one initiative. Robert Smalls, what he really wanted, the land at Port Royal that landed on the U.S. troops under DuPont and Thomas Sherman 
he wanted that land to remain property of the United States military. It was it was something he really wanted. You yeah. know the, the, that that's where they he really felt Charleston ultimately fell. Whatever I want to do, we want to make sure this Port Royal land stays in control of the United States military. He was successful, and today the U.S. troops can you know the the, the where they camped in that same area. Yeah. Is, is still a military institution, Mary. Today it is known as, pa- as Paris Island, where the United States Marines train. So if you're a Marine, the place you trained is thanks specifically to Robert Smalls. Wow, that is so cool. Now, whether, whether that's good or bad, he's the reason why yep. that, that, for, that Paris Island exists because of Robert Smalls. And, you know, he, for the most part, he's going to go from there. He's going to finish his career as a U.S. customs collector at the port of Beaufort. Mm. And he's going to hold it until 1912. You know, he's getting big. He's getting chunky. Okay. Yeah. 1915, February 25th, he's going to get diabetes. He's going to die. He's going to die in his house in Prince street. That's where that's where it's going to go. The thing about him is he's going to die a proud man. Yeah. And he's going to become a hero to citizens throughout the country and remain a hero to this day because he risked everything that he loved to protect his family. Family meant everything for him. He risked everything to save them. He is a true American success story. He Robert Smalls is a guy who should be somebody who, like you said at the very beginning of this, yeah. should be at the top level of American heroes. Oh, yeah. Because what he, what he did to escape was just the beginning. That was just the beginning of what he did. He could have gone to New York City or Boston, lived the life, gave speeches, but no, he wanted to continue to transport yeah. men he wanted to make sure Charleston fell because why he wanted to ride into Charleston on that planter as a free man. Yep. And he did it and his life went on from there. So I, I, I just think he's somebody who deserves a lot of credit. And with this being Black History Month, I think it's somebody who both black people, white people, any color people you want should hold him to the level of the Harriet Tubman's of the world, the Frederick Douglass's of the world. You know, the people who, who went everything for 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 to be an American, forget forget race, just an American. Yeah. And he's somebody who's who uh, who really should be somebody who should be honored. And I, I think he uh, I think he does get the credit. I hear there's a movie coming out about him pretty soon. Really? Um, that's what I heard. Uh, I, I was just about uh, to say, like, I you know, as I'm as I was researching this, um, and this is the second episode where we've done where it's like this needs to be a movie, you know. And his life, I don't know why it's not. Like it, it's it's. I, th- I think he I think it will be I, I think there's a lot of stories coming out about it um, but he's somebody who suffice it to say is is a real American hero and he's somebody who people should look up to and I think they yep. do oh, so, I, I agree well it's just like that quote at the beginning that I read like history often plays strange tricks you know this this guy Charles Crowley was like in 1882 he's not understanding why Smalls is not more of the narrative and he he felt that you know after a century Smalls would be more of the narrative of the Civil War and he's still not you know yeah. like you said he's still not up there with Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass and not to discount what either of those two did at all like they deserve the places they have in history you know but Smalls deserves to be up there with them because you know what he does he's not just freeing his family but what he does too for the war effort is is everything too but more than that it's his family and the freedom and what he stands for the thing that the, the story out of all the stories you know that we talk about here today the one that sticks in my mind is when they when they got to the onward when they finally got to freedom the first yeah. thing he asked was for, he wanted to borrow a u.s flag to raise it on his yeah. boat. 
that, that I mean that that stuff just makes just wants it just makes yeah, you want and that's before to Lincoln, collapse. And that's before Lincoln had even issued his emancipation. That's before the Battle of Antietam, right? Yeah, I mean David Hunter had done his thing. He tried to free them. That got shot down. There, there was some other little emancipations here and there. Yeah. But this this is a guy who risked everything, and 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 he didn't ask for you know protection for his family. No. He just he he wanted to he wanted to raise the U.S. flag. And he made sure he was there when they rose it at Sumter. Yep. They're, they don't make people like that anymore, Mary. They really don't. I and agree. so I hope, hopefully we do, hopefully we did him justice today. I, th- I think I feel like we did. So I just thought of something small, Smalls was, just thought of something. Smalls was in Charleston when Sumter was fired upon and they had to lower the flag and he was in Sumter when they raised it. That's why he wanted to do it. That's why he was there. He, he was there watching the fireworks when, when, when the, when it went off. Yeah, and he wanted to make sure. He, not only was he there for, but he helped trans he helped transport blacks from the Freedmen, yep. Freedmen's Bureau, so they could see it too. So that that that's that's just that this is this is this is movie stuff. This is Hollywood stuff, except it's all real. And history is full of stories like this. Oh, yeah. You just gotta go find them. Yeah, just gotta go find exactly. them. All right. So what's what's next for us? So next for us. So we are moving on to some more episodes. We are going to have our friend MJ on here at some point to talk about Pauline Cushman, who was a female spy. In the Civil War, we're going to doing... talk about the Red Sox. <laughs> I don't think you're going to get MJ talking about that. Um, and we are going to be on March 15th. We are going to be having our next roundtable. It's going to be St. Patrick's Day themed. That'll be a lot of fun. I it bet there'll be no beer drink that day. Yeah, none. Mm. Not by yeah. you, anyway. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is what we have coming down the pike for you guys as well. And lots of other exciting stuff too. Our next book club meeting is going to be in April. And we are going to be talking um, with Western Theater Tim Smith about his book, The Real Horse Soldiers. We got a lot of fun stuff coming down the pike. So so watch the spot for some new things. We got some great things coming down the pike. So any final words from you, Finn Giroux? Episode 101 is in the books. We are on, to, on episode 102. Well, thank you to you for being an awesome co-host and putting up with me um Uh and thank you to all our listeners uh thank you to everyone who came out to fourscore in gettysburg last saturday for our event um and thank you to everybody who comes on our youtube live streams now as well and just thank you for everybody who listens listens to this podcast because without you we would not have got to episode 101 to talk about robert smalls no, it's, it's great that we get to do this. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. We will talk to you all soon. Live coming up this weekend. Uh, and so we will off to episode 102 down the road. Off we go. Mary, again, once I say many, many times, the pleasure, of course, is all yours. And we will talk to you all on the other side. See you all later. Peace out. Bye.